All right, if you got your Bibles this morning, Mark chapter 15, and uh, we're kind of doing a, it's, I'm kind of calling it a backwards Christmas message this morning, because we're actually dealing with where Jesus' life ends up instead of where it begins, which is actually the full meaning of Christmas, because uh, the story of Jesus that we study in this, this book of Mark, and that we've been looking at since the beginning of September, is not just about that he came into the world, that he was born, it was a significant moment, a moment that we cherish a moment that really impacted history, but it was his life and eventually his death and resurrection that made impact beyond who he was and why we still study him and learn about him today. And so we have been journeying on this, and we've got this week, and then uh, the last Sunday of uh, this year, we will finish uh, Mark, Mark chapter 16, about the resurrection of Jesus. But Mark chapter 15 is kind of the climax of the story. The book of Mark has been building up to this point. We were introduced to this amazing protagonist of Jesus Christ early on. I mean, from, from the moment the book opened, we met this amazing character named Jesus. We experienced the growth of his influence, his ability to teach wisdom that no one had ever heard before, his ability to perform miracles that no one had ever seen before. We watched his crowds gathered around him and they grew in size and in their amazement of what he was doing. There was discussion about this man maybe even leading a rebellion and overthrowing Rome. There was talk about this maybe the, the new prophet of God, another prophet that has finally come to bring the word of God to Israel. And, and there were even whisperings that this man might be the long-awaited Messiah. It has been this amazing, beautiful story that we have been on. And just like any good story, though, when the second act comes around, the shift, there's a shift in tone and theme that comes. We start to see the religious establishment begin to take issue with Jesus. They work to trap him in arguments and make him look foolish in front of people that are following him, but to no avail. They begin to scheme with local governing authorities by portraying Jesus as this zealot. It is the change in tone. If you've ever watched one of these suspenseful movies. I, I love suspenseful movies, but I'm like, you know what it happens. Like the, the music starts like, and then it goes, dun, 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 dun. And like your, your body just starts reacting like something is about to happen. And like, even as you're preparing for it, you're like, something's going to jump out from around that corner. I know something's going to jump out. And then sure enough, it does. And they scream on the screen and you scream and grab. I mean, we just, even when we know something's coming and all the clues are telling us, it still sometimes catches us by surprise. And that's what's happening right here. These religious leaders, they, they infiltrate his closest circle and they work with one of his followers to set up a time to arrest Jesus, when the crowds would not be around. And in the blink of an eye, just like that, like something popped around the corner, they have him on the run. They put him through a sham of a trial before a Roman governor. They've greased those reels already to make it so that in just a few hours overnight, when everyone else is sleeping, Jesus is condemned to death. This man who many had placed their hope in is now we wake up in the morning and he is carrying his cross to his execution. In the blink of an eye, everything changed. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 15. And today what I want us to do is to read this very brief account of Jesus' crucifixion and determine the real reason behind it. This moment, this event that has shaped the discourse 
and the direction of human history since it occurred is probably one of the most uh, misunderstood events. Not in how it happened, but why it happened. I think just by reading the story and following these events of Jesus' day, we can see how he was viewed as a threat. We can see how the religious leaders of his day were wanting to get rid of him. We could see how the governing bodies of that day maybe viewed him as an act of sedition and pushing back on their power. And many powerful people were happy to see his days come to an end. But why is this death so important? Why is it something we still talk about today? Why has his death impacted us so greatly? Why are entire religious systems built around this one and only event? Why do people claim that Jesus' death is the source of salvation of all mankind? Why do so many people build their hope on such a horrible event in human history? This is what I want us to grapple with today. This very simple question, why did Jesus have to die? Why? Why does his death carry more weight than anybody else's death? Why do we believe that by his dying, Jesus set into the motion the work of God to bring salvation to all mankind? Why is this not just a moment in human history, but the moment that will impact all of human history? So let's begin by reading this story. Before we jump into Mark 15, let me give you a quick pick. Last week, he was, uh, Jesus was arrested in the garden after we talked about that he had been betrayed, he had been denied, everybody had deserted him. The chief priest and took their soldiers, they got him and immediately took him before their council. They found him guilty in a flash. They couldn't they did not have the authority to put someone to death. So they immediately that night went and woke the Roman governor of Pilate up. This is why everybody else was sleeping. And they brought him before the Roman governor and said this is the man who's out to overthrow the Roman government and has pushed back, and he is a heretic, and we, have, we call for his death, but we cannot put him to death. Only you can. And Pilate, being roused from sleep and trying to deal with this, and he questioned Jesus. Jesus didn't give him many answers. And he said, well, I'll just take care of this real easy. There's a custom where we release a prisoner, and he knew that Jesus had a following, didn't want an uprising on his hand. So he said, let us release Jesus. But the crowd, and it wasn't this huge crowd, it wasn't all of Jerusalem that had gathered. It was a crowd that the chief priests and the elders and the scribes had called to the courtyard. And when he offered him Barabbas, they said, no, we want Jesus killed. And when they, instead of offering Jesus, they said, give us Barabbas. And eventually Pilate put Jesus to death. He signed his death warrant. And we're going to see how quickly this happened. So that was in the night. And then I'm Uh, Mark 15, verse 22, we start there, and it says this. And then they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was on the third hour, which means 9 o'clock in the morning, when they crucified him. Catch how quickly that happened? I mean, you talk about a railroad of a trial. I mean, he... the By 9 a.m., he was on the cross. And the inscription and the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him and 
to one another, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour, which is noon, had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at 3 p.m., that ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Aloha, Aloha, Leme Sachatami. I think that's how you say it. Which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the son of God. In just a few verses, the life of Jesus is snuffed out as we know it. He's put on a cross. He's crucified. The whole world seems to ache with the pain of his crucifixion. The, the skies turn dark. The temple, the, the, the divider in the temple is torn in half, dividing where the holy of holies was, where the dwelling place of God was. And he said, no more. It separated no more. Everything was impacted. And the truth is, most of us in here probably heard this story before, but we may come at it from different perspectives. And I want to address a couple of those this morning. Maybe you're here this morning as a skeptic sitting in the room. You don't believe that Jesus was anything other than a man who lived, died, and had some fairy tales associated with him. My challenge to you today would be this. Would you for a moment remove your skeptic hat and listen as I share why I rationally believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the defining event of our lives and all of human history and why we must reconcile in our hearts and minds what this truth means? I just ask you if you're a skeptic, just take that hat off for a minute and would you rationally engage with me? Maybe you're sitting in here and you grew up in a religious environment. In your whole life, you have heard about Jesus. That he was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, died on a cross for our sins, and then rose again on the third day. And while you have heard that and can repeat it, maybe you have never taken the time to understand why this actually needed to happen. You can tell someone they need to be saved or go to heaven, but you can't explain why the death of Jesus is what saves them. And my challenge for you today is this, is that you would actually put on your thinking cap for a few minutes this morning and allow this teaching to add depth to our sometimes shallow thinking of just saying, well, that's what the Bible says, so we've got to believe it, and actually start understanding why it becomes part of the core of who we are. So let's begin to put this puzzle together to answer this question, why does the death of Jesus mean anything to me today? And the first part that we've got to see to begin to understand this, why the death was important, you have to begin with a very simple proposition, and that is God is God and I am not. And it's called the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. God is God and I am not and neither is anybody else. I hate to burst your bubble in here this morning, but you are not God. Maybe you want to be, maybe you have aspirations to be, maybe that's where you're climbing the ladder to be in your life, but you're not going to get there. It's not going to happen. You are not God, I'm not. There's nothing we can do to, to get there 
one day. For those of us who are, have been taught if we work hard enough, we can accomplish anything in your lives, that's hard for us to hear sometimes. We like to think, no, if I worked hard enough, when God retires, I could take over. Right? I mean, that's our mentality, but that is not going to happen. Here's what sovereignty means. It means that God is not just an authority or has some authority or not even that he is the ultimate authority. God means, sovereignty means this. God is the one and only authority. The one and only. There is no other authority outside of God. God does not determine what is right and wrong. What is right and wrong flow out of his character and nature. He's not up there debating, mm, is this right today or is this wrong? No, it flows out of who he is. God was not placed into authority by someone else, so he can never cease to be the one and only authority. And while God can choose to withhold the exercise of his authority for a season or for a reason, it does not mean that any other force is going to one day challenge his authority and will one day overthrow him. His authority is absolute and supreme. And for those of us who have grown in this beautiful democratic environment, we don't resonate too well with this, right? We talk about how our leaders work for us, how they're accountable to this for their actions and behaviors. And every few years we get to exercise our authority at the ballot box. No leader is bigger than the whole. Whether you like it or not, that simply is not true when it comes to God and the sovereignty of God. I want you to hear this morning. There are three things that have no impact on the sovereignty of God. And the first one is this. You do not have to understand it for it to be true. You don't. You'd be like, no, but I, I want to understand. I was like, can I just tell you something? What makes God God? Part of what makes God God is that I don't understand all of who he is. The minute I can understand everything about God, he ceases to be God. If I can know more than God is, then I become God. God is in some ways unknowable, and you cannot understand his sovereignty. The fact is this. I don't understand. Maybe there's a scientist in here who can fully explain gravity to me. I mean, I, I understand. I understand the equations, but I don't understand why this body attracts this body. But I just know this. I don't have to understand it for it to work on me. I can jump out of a plane, and gravity will immediately exert its effects on me and start dragging me toward the ground at a very fast speed. Very set speed, I think it's 9.2 meters per second squared or something, whatever it is. But it starts working immediately. I don't have to understand it for it to work. The second thing is this. I don't even have to believe it for it to be true. I don't have to believe that God is the authority for it to be true. I cannot believe in the law of thermodynamics. It says, you know, one force acting on another force, equal or greater value will produce the same thing. But if I step out in front of a truck, I can believe with all my heart that I'm not going to experience the second law of thermodynamics, but I am. I'm going to be hit by a truck, and I'm going to go in this direction. I don't have to believe it for it to be true. And the third thing is this. I don't even have to obey it for it to be true. I can try to work against the authority of God, push back on it. I don't even have to obey it. That does not make it true. You can be in class, and you can be like, you know what? I know my teacher assigned this project. I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to prove to her that I did not thank you, PJ. PJ is a living testament of this. <laughs> C's get degrees, right, PJ? Isn't that what you say? Uh, you, you don't have to. If you don't turn in, I'll prove to her, to them, that I don't have to do it. But guess what? 
They're set up a big zero by your name in the grade book. It's going to impact you whether you obey it or not. Sometimes we think we get to determine the authority and sovereignty of God by whether we obey it, believe it, or understand it, and that is not it. It's not it. To understand, and this is where I want to get to, why Jesus' death means anything, you have to come to grips with the idea that God doesn't make the rules. He is the rule. He is it. And if he is the rule, then his ways are always right, always good, always wise, always purposeful, always prompt, always what is best for each of us. There is no alternative path for us to experience the pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope that God intended for us from the beginning of time. The thing I want you to see about this is that if God is sovereign, if there is one God and only one with true authority and is the source of life, he has to be good. If he wasn't good, then there would be no life. There would be no hope, no peace, no meaning, no pleasure. God, as the creator and sustainer of all things, cannot be evil and vile. He cannot be a God bent on destroying the very thing he created, or our world would already be in ashes. It wouldn't be here. The fact that he is working for the redemption and the restoration of things proves by nature he is good and gracious. Which brings us to the next piece of the puzzle. As we understand the sovereignty and authority of God, then we have to understand that we have a problem, and it is the sinfulness of man. This good and gracious God created an environment of perfection for creator and creation to live in. And the scripture is referred to as the garden, paradise, a place of unending love and eternal peace. It's a, it is a beautiful place, a place that actually needs no hope because there is nothing there to be longed for. It is a place that needs no grace because there is no wrong there to separate us. It is a place that needs no work to maintain and to move it back to perfection because it is already completely renewable and sustainable. That's his original plan. The original setting, the Garden of Paradise, was formed as an everlasting place of harmony and love. Harmony and love. But for it to be a true place of harmony and love, one thing has to be present, and that's choice. It's the ability to choose. This is why God gave man the ability to choose. Without choice, there is no true love. Think about it. Without choice, there is no harmony or unity. Without choice, love becomes an obligation. Without choice, unity becomes a prison. This is why God gave man the ability to choose to walk in love and unity with their creator or walk in opposition to him. Because as we choose, we experience true love and true harmony. This is what it means in Scripture when it says that you and I were created in the image of God. That we have been given the ability to create and to choose just like the one who created us. And while choice is a beautiful thing, and most must be present for us to experience love, unity, and harmony, can I be very clear, we have not been good stewards of this gift of choice. We haven't. I haven't. From the earliest recorded history of mankind to the earliest moments of each and every day, we make choices that go against the very nature of God, against our good and gracious creator, against the things that are best for us, and it's simply called sin. Sin. Sinfulness of man. The problem with sin is this, is we often don't really understand it. Instead of dealing with what it really is, we've turned sin into a list of things not to do. 
We have equated sin to these external acts that we commit. I steal, I cheat, I lie, I abuse, I gossip, I scheme, I manipulate, I whatever it is. These are my sins. Go to confessional. What do we confess? The acts that we have committed. When we equate sin to external actions, we get caught up in this hamster wheel of thinking and responding in our lives. I mess up. So if I can just stop doing this, then I'll stop sinning. But then when I fail, I actually feel more guilty than I did the first time. And I feel like I got to do more to make it up to God. And I get on this hamster wheel because I continue to fail. We feel more guilty, more guilty next time, next time, next time. And the sin keeps showing up. These acts keep showing up. It's like we pick an apple off of a tree and then we come back the next season and wonder why there's another apple there. Like, I thought I got rid of that one. Because sin, these acts, are actually the fruit of the sin that's actually in our heart. It comes out of who we are. Sin is very simple to understand. It is when you and I choose to acknowledge, embrace, and act upon any other authority other than the authority of God. That's what sin is. Well, is this a sin? Is this a sin? I want to ask you to stop asking that question. Is this act a sin? Can I do this? Can I do Sin? Take a step back and realize sin is when I acknowledge, embrace, and then act on any other authority other than the authority of God. Is this a sin? Are you basing it out of the authority of God? Are you basing it out of your own authority, your own desires, the desires someone else has for you? Are you basing it out on the desire that God has for you? Sin is when we decide that I know best, someone else knows best. Our circumstances dictate that I get to act in direct opposition to God. Sin does something to us. Sin always, always causes us to move farther and farther away from God and move in the opposite direction that he desired for us. And if God is the author of life, if he is the author of truth and righteousness, then when we move away from him, there is only one direction that this pathway can lead, to deceit and wickedness and eventually death. And I don't know about you, but you'd go, well, you know, I don't know that I've characterized my occasional gossip nature or or that I manipulate people as deceitful, wicked, and moving me toward death, but I want you to hear this morning, it is. There is no distinction. Sin is sin. Whether it's just thinking bad about somebody and wanting something bad to happen to them or actually going and murdering them. Sin is sin. It's moving in the opposite direction of where God wants. It's one way or the other. There aren't multiple ways this way and multiple ways this way. There's the path of truth and there's the path that's not truth. There is no in-between, no small sins. So if sin isn't an act, then what is it? And how do we deal with it? At the root of every sin is the belief that either God isn't enough, God doesn't understand me, or God doesn't care for me. When I lie, why do I lie? Because I believe that truth is too difficult and harmful to express, which means that I actually don't believe that God will protect me if the truth comes out. Why do I steal or cheat? Because I believe that I either need or deserve something that isn't mine. Because I don't believe that God actually has the ability to provide for me. Why do I gossip and scheme to tear down other people? Because I believe that it is up to me to elevate my standing and diminish the standing of others. Because I don't believe that God truly loves me, finds worth in me, 
and I must prove myself to him. You see, you can always drive sin back to a way that we're trying to overcome this idea that God does not love me, care for me, or want the best for me. Sin in its purest form is not an act. It's not even an attitude. Instead, it is the admission that I don't believe God and his promises. And instead, I will work to find a way to find pleasure, peace, meaning, and hope in some other source outside of God. A source that may momentarily quench my appetite for these things, but will always leave me empty, unsatisfied, and in need of another fix to get over the desires that only God can satisfy. Sin guides us to a point. And where it leads us to is not life, which is the creator where God gives us life. Sin always leads to death. It is walking us and guiding us toward death. Which brings us to the next puzzle piece and the real question today, which is Jesus' death. Piece three is this. We have to learn about the sacrifice of Jesus. This definition of sin leaves us lacking because we can't simply strive to act better We must actually be better. We must become the righteousness of God, become like God in our thinking. We must be able to not just make the right choice, but to have the right attitude and always acknowledge God as the one and only source of authority. Can I just be honest with you? I fail at this every day. Every day. I allow sin to rule my life way too often. I make choices that go against the desires and hopes that God has for my life. And while maybe I've gotten to a point of not being able to demonstrate the actions or the fruit of my sin, I feel like I am just now scratching the surface of changing my attitudes and letting God deal with my attitudes so I'm starting to think the right way. And I don't know that I've even started yet dealing with how my heart is corrupt and wicked and it's always thinking that I'm the one in charge and knows best. Maybe in another 20 years, I'll start to scratch the surface there. I am so far from the righteousness of God, that I know I fail God every day. Sin rules my life every day. So what do we do? Because the truth is there is another side to this sin coin that we must understand. And it's the idea that sin has consequence. There's consequence. And this is called the wrath of God. Now, most of us, when we talk about God and wrath, we're like, all right, let's just not talk about that. Like, let's just, let's skip over that page in the Bible and, you know, wherever it says that God was wrathful to angry, it's like, oh, that's all right. I mean, that's why some people, say, I've heard people say before, like, I never read the New Testament because I couldn't get over the Old Testament because God was just angry all the time in the Old Testament. And it's not that way. What I want you to see is this. We have this concept that we misunderstand the wrath of God. We think that God is sitting up in heaven just waiting for us to mess up with like a lightning gun. And as soon as he sees us mess up, he's like, pow. And he's like, all right, you know, I got you. And you start going this way, pow, there's another one. And God is just up there like shooting ducks in a pond with his wrath waiting for us to mess up. The wrath, we, we think that he is just out to get us. This is not what the wrath of God is like. I want you to hear something very clear this morning. The wrath of God is not directed at us. It is directed at the sin that entangles us and ensnares us. God in his great love for us and out of his goodness of his nature fights against our sin even when we can't. I remember when I got my first car, I told you before a couple weeks ago, my first car was not a 
nice car. It was a Chevy Citation. It looked like an egg on wheels. It was old. It drove okay for a little while. But can I tell you, when I got that car and I got those keys, I drove it home, like it was my, I treated it like it was a Porsche. I mean, I'm like, this is, in my mind, Porsche 911 convertible, I mean, red, you know, and people would get in, and I, I remember my brother getting in, and like, he's like eating some, you know, has some food, I was like, no, 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 no food environment in this car, like, you're going to leave trash, there's going to be french fries stuck under the seat, and like, I am protective of this thing, I am treating it like it is worth millions of dollars, because it's mine, it was my car, and I wanted to protect it, and I want you to hear this morning, I would show wrath to people who diminished the value of my car. I didn't want the french fries under the seats. Now, I mentioned when I got kids, I got over that. Like, you know, it's just, you couldn't worry about it anymore. God has the same, not even the same. God has infinitely more protection and love for us than I ever did for my first car. And he will do everything in its extreme power to protect us and to keep us away from the sin that ensnares us, entangles us, and entraps us. It has been trained on the outcome of sin. His wrath is always pushing back on sin and on death. The reason you and I will often, though, experience the wrath of God is because of our choice. Because if his wrath is expressed fully over here towards sin that's leading us to death, and his love is fully expressed over here in his salvation and in his nature and in this oneness of paradise in the garden, guess what? The more I walk in this direction, guess what I'm getting closer to? The wrath of God. You ever been at one of those big bonfires? I remember in high school, our, our church had a bonfire, and somebody like thought it would be fun to, like, can we make the biggest bonfire in the world. You remember PJ? At the, I mean, we, it was like a beacon of light for all of the city to see. And like you could not get probably within 50 yards of it without feeling like your face is beginning to melt. That much heat was coming off of it. If I walked away this way, it would diminish. But if I walked toward it, the heat that I would experience would begin, begin to bring me pain. And you and I sometimes feel like the wrath of God is turned on us because we are by choice walking away from God and walking to where he is dealing with death, where he is pouring out his wrath on the payment of sin. The truth is this. This has to be dealt with. And there is always a system that God in his just and fair nature has used to deal with sin and the price and consequence of sin, and it's called sacrifice. From the very first sin to the last one that you and I committed, sin requires sacrifice. Why is that? You know, that's a nice little saying, but why is it? Because if sin doesn't cost anything, if there is no penalty for moving away from the goodness of God, then guess what? There is no good and evil. There's not. There's no consequence If it's the same here and the same there, there is no good and evil. And then by logic, there is no choice. Choice goes away. And if there's no penalty of sin, no price that is paid, then there's also no reward for goodness, no blessing of obedience. This is the choice. The penalty of sin is often experienced by those who commit it and by those who's committed against. But the payment for that sin has always been in the hands of the guilty party the one who caused the sin, 
some kind of payment, some kind of sacrifice has always been and will always be needed to atone for the injustice of sin. Every culture, every religion has embraced this idea. You can say, I don't like it. This has been around forever. It's seen in the law of Moses. It's seen in the Hammurabi Code. It's seen in the 12 tablets of Roman law. It's seen in the American justice system. There's this common thread through each one of these that there is a penalty for breaking a law and a price must be paid. This penalty, a sacrifice of payment, restitution, imprisonment, and even death. Sin always carries a penalty, a sacrifice, a payment. And all these systems are rooted in the eternal truth from this sovereign God that sin carries a consequence and requires a sacrifice. And Jesus' sacrifice means this. Jesus was the ultimate and final sacrifice for the entirety of sin, for the entirety of mankind. This is why his death is important. He wasn't just a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice for the entirety of man and the entirety of sin. And this is the question we grapple with today. For us to understand why Jesus' death matters, we must first see that God is sovereign and only his authority He's the only one with authority. We must understand that sin, what sin is and why it separates us from God. And we must understand that it requires a sacrifice to remedy it. So why does Jesus' death, why does his sacrifice mean more than anyone else's? And what, why do I choose today of giving, giving my life to him and choosing his sacrifice? Why does it impact my life? Let me help you see this as we close with just a couple ideas. The first reason Jesus' death mattered more than anybody else is because Jesus was more than a man. Jesus was more than a man. When we started looking at Mark in the first four chapters of Mark, we were introduced to this person of Jesus, this amazing character. But one of the things we learned as we studied the scripture, as we've seen in even outside sources, outside of scripture, is that there was a firm belief and a full demonstration that Jesus was not just a man, but he was a God, he's God who came in the form of of a man. Why is this important? Because who must make the sacrifice and must come from the hands of the guilty party, which is mankind, right? And for the payment to come from mankind, it had to come from a man. God knew that no man or woman could live a perfect life in order even to make atonement for their own lives, to make it to death perfect. He knew he couldn't do that. So there's no way that one person could satisfy the payment for all of mankind. So working within this eternal system of sacrifice and atonement, God came to the earth in the form of a man to offer himself as a sacrifice for all mankind. One of the most misunderstood things about the death of Jesus is this idea that God killed his son. Even this week, I was in a conversation. Somebody said, I can't, I'm not a religious person because I just cannot believe in a God that would kill his son. Can I, can I help you understand something? God did not kill his son. God instead came to this earth in the form of a son to make himself like man to be a sacrifice for all mankind. God came in the form of a man to be the sacrifice. His sacrifice was ultimate and eternal because he is ultimate and eternal. God didn't sacrifice something for us. He became the sacrifice for us in the form of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah. Which brings us to the second thing that we have to know about Jesus and why his death is important. Not only Jesus was more than a man, but Jesus was also without sin. He was without sin. 
The only sacrifice I need is, is, a, is a sacrifice that without blemish, without stain. Jesus, is, Jesus willingly took on the full payment for sin, even though he did not have a debt to pay. There was no debt he owed. There was no sin in his life that he had to make restitution for. Instead, his eternal nature allowed him to pay at his death the eternal consequence of all the sin of mankind. It paid my debt, your debt, and the debt of all people because he is the creator of all things. This payment and sacrifice does not have a limit on it. It doesn't run out. His payment satisfied the wrath of God because the last thing I want you to see is this, and this sets us up for the last sermon, is Jesus was not overcome by death. Jesus was not overcome. Even though he died, he overcame death. The final reason Jesus is the ultimate and only sacrifice needed is because he overcame the penalty of sin. The wrath of God was poured out completely on his death of a righteous man, and it overcame death in the grave through the resurrection. And this is where we're going to get to in chapter 16. Final pieces of this puzzle of why this man Jesus' life, death, and eventual resurrection makes such a compelling story that still impacts our life today. So my question for you today is this. Will you put this puzzle together in your life? Will you struggle with this? If you're a skeptic here today, would you consider what it would mean to you if God is sovereign and sin is deadly? How would this impact how you view your life, your choices, your understanding of God, yourself, others, and what happens beyond this grave? If you're a believer in here today, you're a religious person, would you allow this to challenge yourself to better understand why the sacrifice of Jesus is central to everything about our lives? Not just to be something you can recite, but something that you actually believe and that you're living out of? How would that impact your view of your life, your choices, your understanding of God, yourself, others, and what happens beyond this grave? Will you start to put this puzzle together that Mark has been laying out for the last 15 chapters now that will change our life, the course of human history, but the life of every person sitting in this room as well? Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Father, as we come to our time of prayer today, we talked about a lot today, but it's simple. It's not difficult. It's not even deep. It's just that you're God. You're good. I move away from you, and you draw me back through the sacrifice of Christ. God, help us to embrace that. Help us this week to let those truths delve deep into our minds and our hearts and our soul. God, for those in here who have trouble believing this and are skeptical about some of these, God, would you allow them to search you and know you and see if you are who you say you are? And for those of us in here that have been believers for many years and we've maybe even never thought this deeply about this subject, God, would you allow us to begin to internalize these truths so that they just exude out of every part of who we are because it is who we are? This hope, this joy that we celebrate on this Advent Sunday come from this Savior, God, man, who died for us to pay our penalty. And God, we live out of that today. God, thank you for this gift of Christ 
whom we celebrate today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.